Due to the rising interest rates, people are facing serviceability issues. So when you join hands with the people who have serviceability, automatically your borrowing capacity goes up. You are able to secure an asset which individually. One of the best things that I've seen out of co-investing is people building their own principal place of residences. You have to disclose all your debts and liabilities when you want to, for example, refinance your other loan. Basically, the other person has to show all the debts, liabilities and loan. Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today, our topic is all about co-investing or buying properties with friends and family. Is that a good idea or is it a bad idea? We are going to talk about various mistakes people make when they are co-investing or buying properties with friends and family. We are going to talk about the pros and the cons of co-investing and also, more importantly, If you are going to do co-investing in order to put your portfolio on steroids, how to do it safely and securely. So stay tuned till the very end while you get all the good stuff around how to safely do co-investing. Thank you for listening to us. Stay tuned and I'll see you inside. Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are going to talk about co-investing or buying properties with friends, family, relative, is it a good idea or is it a bad idea? Now, before we jump into the topic, let me introduce my co-host today, drum rolls, Amol. Uh, You've all met Amol from the last episode that we did around refinance mistakes. Amol, how are you today? I'm good, Moss. How are you? I am amazing. Amol is from Ask Financials, a very renowned broker, a, a very astute investor, Amal, I'll let you talk a bit about yourself first. Thanks for the introduction. So I've been in property space for almost 10 years now. So I personally have built my property portfolio. I've done developments, some rental flips and things like that. So I help my clients to grow their portfolio, structure their loans properly and be a part of the team to grow their portfolio. Amazing. And look, it's, it's an amazing thing to have a broker who is well-versed in property investment game and in property investment space himself. I see a lot of brokers who are fresh into the industry who do not have a lot of runs on the board when it comes to property investments. And so having a broker who has done the, the, long, the long yards, the hard yards in this space, you know, definitely goes a really long way, right? I'll tell you, I was with ANZ for almost 12 years. And when I started on my investment journey, for the first two, three loans, it was a vanilla deal for most of the brokers. The more complex it started getting, I hardly found any broker. I'm, um, I was a data analyst and uh, I'm into data. So I love analytical numbers and I thought this is one of the space which I can add value to. So, yeah, so I love helping my clients. And and hundred percent, I think the real need for the broker is to find those non-conventional ways of, you know, setting up the property portfolio, scaling up the property portfolio. And so, you know, that's where you know, you get the best benefit out of the, out of the broker. You know, you can get a loan from any bank typically, right? You know, the banks would give you the loan off the counter basically these days. But the reason to use a, a professional broker is typically to, you know, answer some of these questions around, you know, should you be investing or co-investing with friends and family? Let's jump right into this. A, a very interesting topic. And you've, you're hearing a lot about this now considering that the interest rates are higher, right? And so everyone's borrowing capacity is dropped. And so people are now thinking, okay, I have access to equity, but I don't have serviceability. So I'll join forces with my friends or my neighbor or my parents or my brother and buy a property, build a property portfolio. 
before we start talking about the pros and cons, let's give the users a bit of an understanding about what is co-investing. Co-investing, as you said, it's joining the hands together with your family, with your friends, and buying a property. Or, you know, you can do be a co-investor in the ventures, shares. You can do anything as co-investing. So basically, it's joining the hands, coming together, and defining your role responsibilities and buying that asset. Yeah, and let's start on the good side of the co-investing. You know, people who know me know that you know I'm quite biased when it comes to co-investing. What are the key benefits? What do you think? are you know some of the wonderful things that the, you know people would do co-investing for first and foremost it's the serviceability as you said due to the rising interest rates people are facing serviceability issues so when you join hands with the people who have serviceability automatically your borrowing capacity goes up you are able to secure an asset which individually you would have not been able to that's one of the important things for co-investing it's easier entry to the market basically you know they say that individually you are a drop and together you are an ocean basically that's the mentality around here absolutely absolutely and i've seen a lot of people especially when they want to do developments they don't have that much holding capacity borrowing capacity so when you join your hands with your friends and family uh, you are able to complete that project and uh, you are diversifying your risks as well yeah and it's becoming a lot more mainstream right so of course quicker entry to the market is very important but also the scalability to the property portfolio you know naturally when people think about wealth creation they're like okay it's me husband and wife and we have finite income if we join forces with two other people that's basically you know us our serviceability multiplied by 4 and so what you're doing is you're cross leveraging equity versus you know serviceability together to scale up your property portfolio absolutely absolutely second thing is shared expense so all the expense that's um be your interest be your land tax be all the expense is going to be shared so one person is not going to bear all the expense so it helps to hold that property yes yeah the holding cost is quite important because you know ultimately that's what dictates what your lifestyle is going to look like right so it might be a burden for a single person but when it when four is a team then of course you know dividing anything by four means that you know everyone gets a smaller chunk of that holding cost and it becomes quite easier to hold this it is quite commonly done in developments right it is the very common thing to you know form joint ventures or co investing into developments why do you think that you know why does development attracts so much co investing of course scalability is one of the reasons holding cost is another thing when it comes to developments what other reasons do you think people are especially the novice investors who want to go get into developments they are scared to because they don't want to have so by co investing you are diversifying your risks and one of the another important thing is diversifying the expertise so if i'm good at finding the deals but the other person is good at uh, you know the negotiating with something else or uh, the land construction and all that part basically you are well, you know working on your strengths yeah. both of you definitely look one of the one of the best things that i've seen out of co-investing is people building their own principal place of residences and so especially in areas where the house are super expensive the best way to enter into those areas you know you talk about you know mount waverly grand waverly brighton or turak right you buy a single house and it's like 4 million dollars 5 million dollars for example you know house that you want to live in which is you know forever home but you know you could typically get a old run down house put the house down develop it build two houses subdivide and then now you have two properties with equity built into it typically right and and you can hold on to it because sell is not the strategy 
And so a lot of people I see are getting into that space. And I think it's a wonderful strategy on the principal place of residence side of things to basically get into the markets which are almost untouchable or unattainable because for a single person, it's almost impossible to do it. But when you combine together the forces, it's a you know 24 months project where you each come out with a house that you want to live in in an area. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Any other things in relation to the benefits of the co-investing? The last thing I would say is risk sharing. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're diversifying and you're sharing the risk with the other person. Yeah. So it's just very important. What do you think about parents investing with their kids? And of course, you know, we're going to go in a bit of more detail. You know, there are good and bad side to that equation as well. Absolutely. So especially when you are, you know, cash poor, when you are, don't have the serviceability, parents can help you with that. And as you said, there are pros and cons to it. We can move on to the cons and we can discuss about what are the main mistakes or the con side yes. of co-investing. Let's, let's, let's get into that. Let's let's get right into that. So let's start off with the disadvantages of co-investing. And, you know, that's a good segue. Parents co-investing with the kids, you know, do you think it's a good idea? It's a bad idea? Is there a better way to do it? I would start with a better way <laughs> because structure in the co-investing is the very important thing because a lot of mistakes that most of the people do is buying it under your personal name and especially when you're co-investing with your friends families important to have that right structure in place now if you're buying it under your personal name you're basically not only blocking your lines but you're blocking other person's line as well and uh, you have to disclose all your debts and liabilities when you want to for example refinance your other loan basically the other person has to show all the debts liabilities as well and we want to make sure that you are able to service this loan. Now, there's something called CDR, which is Common Debt Reducer. So banks will only take your portion of your debt to service the loan if you want to refinance your other personal loan. Not each and every lender does CDR. So you're delimiting your options over there. Sure, sure. And look, I think the structures makes a lot more sense in this space, right? Because one of the key risks of co-investing is basically all of these debts almost cross-subsidized between each other, right? You know, typically what you're doing from bank's perspective is that, you know, the bank is looking and looking from a risk perspective, each and every one of you accountable for a particular loan. So, you know, if you take $500,000 as an example for a house that you're going to acquire between two parties, you know, the bank would say party A and party B, both of you are equitably responsible for that $500,000. It does not typically mean that, you know, 250 for this and 250 for that. Yes, you know, in the personal capacity, they might use that debt reducer. But when it comes to trusts and when it comes to company structures, et cetera, everyone is liable, everyone is accountable, and both of their serviceabilities are blocked. And so typically that's the biggest sort of disadvantage when it comes to co-investing. And how do you manage this? And so, of course, you know, trust structures is one of the key things to manage this. What else can we do in this space in order to, you know, mitigate some of these risks? It's important that when you get into um, this structure, define rules and responsibilities, have legal advice, have legal paperwork in place, understand what your um, percentage ownership is going to be. And uh, once you have that everything documented, written, um, stay accountable to it. Definitely. definitely. And also the, the most important thing when we also talk about co-investing is having similar profile people coming in together to invest is, is quite important. You know, all the time, 
the, the, the biggest mistakes that I see or the biggest disadvantages that I see in co-investing is there is one party that is at an advantage and then there is another party which is not an advantage. And, you know, let's get down into a bit of this. The most important or the common issues that I've seen is relationship strain in the um, co-investing living. Initially, they are very motivated. They want to get into the property. We want to buy the property. And when one person is doing all the work, the other person is not doing the work. But when it comes to the profit splitting, it's going to get split by 50-50. The person who is doing the, all the hard yards is not going to be happy. And I've actually seen that with one of a few of my clients. They're like, oh, the other person doesn't do it. I don't want to. I want to get out of these things. And especially when you are investing in your personal name, it's going to be really messy. Yes. Yes, typically. And and that's why, you know, having the right accountability and having the right share splits is very important. You know, people naturally think that, uh, you know, if, if one person is bringing in serviceability, the other person is bringing in cash, that could be a 50-50 split. Um, I always say to people that, you know, that split doesn't not always have to be 50-50. You know, you need to take the amount of work or the sweat equity that the person is bringing into the deal. You need to take cash versus serviceability as well. You know, you could be co-investing in a way where, one person is bringing in all the serviceability and the other person is only bringing in a portion of the cash, you know, for, for the deposits or the holding cost. And so, you know, that the equitable in these scenarios doesn't mean 50, 50, it could be, it could be 60, 40 or 70, 30, depending on, you know, because ultimately serviceability is your capital contribution to the deal. Right. And a lot of people don't think that I've made that mistakes in my, you know, younger you know, younger days, you know, when I was 24, especially doing my first project and I did that split of 50-50, did all the hard work and handed away that 50% profit to someone else. But ultimately that's how you learn, right? You know, sometimes it's okay to get into these deals to get, you know, some runs on the boards. What are other disadvantages? Let's talk about the risk transfers between the two parties, you know, let's going, going back to the parents' conversation. Yes, the structure plays a really important part, but I've seen parents going into the loans with their kids you know is there a better way can they not just hand out the money to the kids you know what do you think about you know as a gift or you know to help them in acquisition of their investment properties rather than getting into the loan with them handing cash is one part second is if they are facing the serviceability issue and where your parents are jumping in for the serviceability purpose it makes sense but there are guarantor loans as well where, you know, if the total equity, if they have sufficient equity, the guarantors can come out of that loan. So that will be a more ideal rather than co-investing. But having that right structure, as you said, is very, very important. Second is that financial strain. So in case if one party passes out or if they lose their job, the other party is still liable to make that payment. And for whatever reason, if one party defaults, the other party is still accountable and liable to make that full payment. And that's going to put a lot of financial strain on the other party. Definitely, definitely. And you see a lot of co-investing happening in super innovation or SMSF side of things these days. Absolutely, yeah. So there is a bay trust we, we have to do. And uh, SMSF, it's very common that people come together, chip in their uh, super and get into this kind of funds. And I always say to people, look, I mean, if you want to really test out co-investing, maybe start off on the SMSF side of things. And again, this should not be constituted as, you know, financial advice or tax advice. But SMSF is an easier entry point because typically both of you cannot access SMSF. You know, you would be in a similar scenario where none of you have any properties in SMSF and you can set up a central 
superannuation fund or SMSF or self-managed superannuation fund. Bring all your money there and start investing through that to test and see as to how this is going to work out. And the, the ongoing holding cost is provided through the contributions anyway. So you don't have to really sacrifice your lifestyle in order to do any of these co-investing into the SMSF space. Yeah, absolutely. But also it comes down to your investment goals. So all the parties have to be aligned because if one party um, after two years takes also saying that now nah, I want to get out of this, it becomes messy. Yes. And I think that's one of the biggest risks as well when it comes to co-investing, right? You know, because things change, life moves on, financial decisions change. You know, people try to, you know, build bigger houses for themselves or change their own personal lifestyle. And if they are co-investing with other people, you know, they could potentially find out that two or three years down the track, they cannot move their loans or they cannot do a lot of these things that they want to because of this one small loan that is costing them everything, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I have a really interesting story here for, you know, one of my clients and, and they did this in the bestest of the intention, you know? So the two brothers, they came in together. They wanted to buy a property for their parents to live in. And so they came in together. The other party was really high net worth party. And so they had a lot of serviceability and so they provided everything in cash towards their, you know, them putting in through. And this person, you know, brought in their serviceability because they were not really well to do at that time, right? And so the loan was under their name. They provided the deposit and that's how they bought the place for the parents. But they packed all of this into a trust, you know, typically. And that's where it became really interesting. So no one explained to them how this works. They went out and bought a house and land package in a year's time thinking that, oh, we're going to buy this seven, $800,000 property that, you know, we are going to settle in two years time. Two years later, they've paid 10% deposit on that. I think seven to $80,000. Two years later, they go to the bank. The bank said no for them to get any loan. So not only did they missed out on that deposit, they lost that deposit because of that, that single small property that they bought, like three hundred fifty or $400,000 property in such a shame, right? You know, individually, it should have been fine just because they combine all of this together. You know, all of this cross basically made uh, it look like from banks perspective that, you know, they can't get any new loans or, you know, they're stuck into some of these things. And so some of these mistakes that you make or some of these decisions that you make around co-investing might not provide, uh, might be a, a short term solution, but it would be a long term pain. And you would only find that out in two years or three years time. And what tends to happen is because of these massive transactional costs that comes with this, where you can't sell the house because the market is crap, or you can't move it to other person because it triggers stamp duty, or you can't move it into any, any other structure. It basically means that you're stuck there for a very long time. And so people, you know, miss out on these massive opportunity costs when it comes to co-investing side of things. Why does it typically work into development is an interesting one. You know, my personal feeling and take is that development is an in and out game. And so there is a finite time limit. You know that the development is going to finish in 24 months or 36 months. And so you know that even if you're co-investing, you know that at the end of two years or three years, you know, there is an exit strategy in place for you to come out of these things, you know, be it through deed of partition where you are splitting the loans and bringing the property back into your own personal property portfolios. Where it becomes quite cumbersome is where there is no exit strategy in place. You know, you're acquiring it for the sake of acquiring it. Yes. And the only exit strategy is sell, right? And that's where it becomes really, really tricky. Always when you get into any debts, always have an exit strategy. 
So that will really help and all the parties are on the same page. So it won't create any future conflicts. Definitely. Definitely. Any parting words in relation to co-investing among? I'll tell you some tips for successful co-investing. First is have open communication. So establish clear lines of communication, keep it open, keep it transparent and make sure that all the parties are on the same lines. Second is have legal documentations and good structure in place. So having your A team around you, your accountants, financial planners and your mortgage broker, see how um, draft this comprehensive co-ownership agreement and uh, discuss it with all the parties. Financial due diligence. So assess each co-investor's financial situation, responsibilities and contribution carefully because if tomorrow if other party is going to be under financial stress it's going to put a financial stress on you so important to have that financial due diligence exit strategies so plan for the exit strategy before you get into this know what your exit strategy is going to be and make sure that all the parties involved are on the same page and last but not the least is regular reviews so catch up with your partners make sure that everyone the project is on on the on time and everyone are on the same page that's amazing that's awesome i'll just add one more thing to that and that's having a long term view of how the co-investing is going to exist you know a lot of people think it from a very binary position i'm going to buy this property and that's where it's going to end have a bit of a view on a longitudinal view around okay how many properties how many years what are you trying to achieve what are you trying to do are you going to expand this co-investing to more people you know and so how do you structure this properly that you can add more people into this you know into this niche or in this structure right so ultimately that's what's going to really help you scale up your property portfolio and create wealth on the side don't forget about you know doing anything less in your personal capacity you can still keep investing whatever you want in your own personal capacity if you have the right structures in place and this would be almost like an icing on the cake co-investing is that's how it should be treated rather than just depending on wealth creation through co-investing thank you for coming in amol this was great again a lot of information provided i'll let amol do a shout out as to where you can find amol on online oh, yep so you can visit on asfinancials.com.au or shoot me an email at amol@asfinancials.com.au perfect awesome thank you for listening to us if you have any questions comments or stories that you have felt or if you've heard in relation to co-investing please do share with us thank you for listening to us today stay safe keep smiling keep investing this is amol and mos checking out adios